Welcome to the Philip Wiley Show. Take a look behind the curtain of professional hacking and hear compelling discussions with guests from diverse backgrounds who share a common curiosity and passion for challenges and their job. And now, here's your host, offensive security professional, educator, mentor, and author, Philip Wiley. Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm very excited to have Casey Ellis joining today. Casey's the founder of Bug Crowd. Uh, I got to meet him as an ambassador at Bug Crowd, and I really like, love what they're doing there. And one of the cool things I like about Casey is even though he's an executive now, he's still plugged into the hacker community, still stays in touch with his roots. When you see him at DEF CON, he's hanging out with the hackers, and, uh, and the hackers respect him. You know, a lot of cases, people are not to say that hackers are disrespectful, but most people don't want to that in that realm don't want to associate associate with the suits. But Casey's well, I mean, we, we are we are kind of anti-establishment as a as a service. I think uh, in, in some ways as a community, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, do it. Keeping keeping uh, true to the hacker vibe. So thanks for joining, Casey. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners that may not know of you, uh, there's a lot of people that are new that. Uh, listen to this podcast and kind of gets their inspiration and motivation to get started in cybersecurity. Why don't you share your background, kind of your hacker origin story, how you got started and and where you're at today? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I appreciate that. I mean, I think, you know, I'm just about to turn 42. So that's kind of you know, my kind of generational origin. Uh, I, I think folks that are my age, um, you know, we've got a certain kind of point in time that we're introduced to technology and the internet just in general. Like I started school without computers and finished school with computers everywhere. So that was definitely kind of informative in, in terms of, you know, how I kind of view the world and the role of technology in it. Um, getting started as a hacker, really, it came down to, you know, growing up being curious, um, you know, being quite kind of stubborn with like pursuing curiosity and trying to figure things out. Um, you know, my father was a science teacher, so I had a lot of opportunity to to play with technology, to learn new things. Um, he was he was fantastic in terms of actually supporting and cultivating that kind of interest. Mum was the same. Um, so I had a good environment. I think I had kind of DNA that was conducive to all this stuff to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, th that was, you know, growing up. Um, I think the other side of it is that, you know, I always, I've always kind of liked this idea of thinking like a criminal but not wanting to be one do you know what i mean like there's there's aspects mm -hmm. to criminal creativity that i actually kind of admire in a lot of ways um you know personally like i don't want to cause harm so you know for me you know especially growing up there was a deliberate choice not to do things that would cause harm and actually pursue a criminal career path um, but there's still that curiosity there that was kind of you know the heat under the pot so to speak so that was an interesting kind of set of things that went into it. Um, you know, finishing high school, I basically tripped over into a, into a network engineering role. I actually um, <clears throat> uh, applied and, and started a uh, basically a nuclear medicine degree. Um, did about six weeks of that and realized that I was only doing it because that was what I was told I should do after high school. And I couldn't quite, you know, kind of put the, uh, the, the rubber to the road in terms of actually making that happen. So I stepped out of that to rethink, you know, what I wanted to do next and, and actually got offered a, a network engineering apprenticeship um, from, a, you know, an entrepreneur founder, you know, someone who started a company down in Australia. And pretty promptly after getting into that role, I started hacking stuff um, at, at our clients and, and realized that there was value in that. Um, that was kind of my introduction to pen testing as a space, right? It's like, oh, okay, I can think bad, do good, 
create value and, and deliver, you know, useful, valuable information uh, to, to the people that are paying us money as, as customers at that point in time. And there's an actual career path that's associated with, with this kind of way of thinking that I just laid out. So that was really how, you know, I, I got my origins from, from a hacker standpoint um, and, you know, kind of how my career got started as well. So how, you were probably one, if not the first bug bounty platform. So if you could kind of describe how you came up with that idea. Yeah, yeah. So we actually pioneered the space. Um, <clears throat> you know, we didn't invent bug bounty or vulnerability disclosure, like all that stuff was prior art. But the idea of putting a platform in the middle to, to basically tap into all of the creativity that exists out there in the white hat community and, and you know, all of the demand for, for human creativity and the ability to basically outsmart the bad guys that exists on the, on the, you know, customer side. Um, we were the first ones to, uh, to break ground on that. And it's well and truly out of the gate uh, now as a, as an idea, I think there's something like 65 odd platforms that are bug crowd esque um, around the world. Um, yeah, really the idea, uh, behind that, there was a, there was a couple of different things. I'd, like I wanted to change the operating environment for hackers. Um, I, I think growing up, you know, that kind of criminal creativity piece that I po pointed out before, and, and just this general sense of, of, you know, wanting to be useful, but the rest of the world, not necessarily understanding that, um, you know, I, I definitely experienced that growing up and, and I knew that there was a lot of people in my community that felt that same way. I think, I think hacking for the, for the better part of, of, you know, my life has been a thing that people just assume is bad. <laughs> um, and in reality, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a morally agnostic skill set. You can use it for bad things. And that's the reason we're all gainfully employed. Right. Um, but there's also a good side to it. Um, what I wanted to do was to basically introduce you know, the world really, um, to, to that idea, um, and, and to allow us to operate as the internet's immune system, which is, I think our rightful role, um, and, and our, you know, very important role in terms of, you know, protecting whatever happens next from, from a technology standpoint. So there was that, um, the other side of it was I was running a pen test company. Um, you know, I, I mentioned like getting into pen testing as a practitioner after about probably six years of that, I actually got married, um, and, like I actually got married, like the product, the thing that precipitated that was getting married and my wife sitting me down at one point and saying, Hey, you computer good, but you people good too. Um, not everyone can do that. Um, have you thought about, you know, moving across into the business side of things and, and, and trying, trying out your, uh, your skills at the front of the house instead of, you know, in the trenches. Um, and she was right. Like I, I didn't actually realize that being able to speak in terms of, of, you know, the human kind of consumer of what we do, as well as being able to do the technology piece was a thing that like not many people can actually do. Um, so she kind of, you know, identified that, that skill um, or, or that kind of predisposition that I had. And I went off and, and chased that, got into sales, um, did that for about four years. And then I got it in my head that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I eventually like quit my job, you know, started working on different things from a, from a founding and a startup standpoint. Um, and eventually, you know, bug crowd happened. Um, but, you know, to answer your question before, uh, doing a pen test company, which was the precursor to bug crowd, like looking at, you know, the problem that we're actually here to solve. Like if, you, if you've got a crowd of adversaries with like lots of different skills, lots of different motivations and an incentive to, to get a result, one person being paid by the hour is never going to be able to compete with that because of the math. Um, it's not because that person's bad at their job or, or anything else like that. It's just fundamentally imbalanced as a, as a way to solve that problem. So 
that was the thing that was kind of keeping me up at night. Um, and, you know, all of these different things kind of came together, you know, knowing the hacker community and, and the fact that they wanted to help, knowing like the amount of skill that was available, it was just kind of unplugged from where it needed to be applied in market. Um, that was the thing that I wanted to solve. And yeah, it, you know, at one point in time, the light bulb went off in terms of actually building a platform to facilitate that. And that's kind of how Bug Crowd came to be. That's a great idea. And it's good that uh, people are starting to adopt the idea, get used to it from a business perspective, because one of the things you run into that I saw a lot of when I became an ambassador, when people hear about bug bunnies, how do you keep people from doing bad things or whatever? It's like, well, people are going to do bad things. They're going to do it regardless, but they're going through a platform that that it's going to risk them getting to continue to participate in that platform. They're, they're going to, you know, be good yeah. and not cause any, any harm. Yeah, like that. That's that's honestly been like a, a huge privilege as a as a you know kind of member in the space, like actually educating hackers on how to how to speak business. Because um, you know, kind of going back to what we we're saying at the start of the the the, uh, the call, like we're not necessarily always the best at, at interfacing with with humans. You know, we see things that are wrong, we want to fix them. We think that's the most important thing culturally. That's a I think really important component. Of, of being a hacker, but the way that that presents to someone who's trying to do a whole bunch of other stuff is is pretty confronting and provocative. Um, so like, how do you smooth that out? How do you translate between these two audiences that, you know, historically have not gotten along very well at all, um, but really need to be able to have a productive and ongoing conversation with each other? Um, and how do you train hackers to be better at that? You know, train businesses on, on being better at accepting the fact that like failure is a part of being human um you're gonna have vulnerabilities and it, that's just life like that's that's not so much a product of, of being bad at security it's it's a you know a product of the fact that you've got humans writing code and deploying systems and humans aren't perfect so assuming that that's true like there are going to be things that go wrong and there's folks that come from the hacker community that take what you've built like and all of the assumptions behind that tip those assumptions upside down to see what falls out and discover weaknesses and risks that you need to go off and mitigate. Like, how do you, you know, have those two groups of people, those two different mindsets play nice together? Um, that's been a huge challenge. I, I, I got to say, like, I think there's there's a lot of things that we've been able to work with. There's a lot of curiosity around this space. And I think that's been really cool. Um, like the ambassador program that you mentioned before, you know, some of the stuff that we've done with swag and just trying to get people kind of excited um, and, and kind of curious around this idea of, your breakers actually being useful. Um, it's taken a lot of time and I, I feel like, you know, the work there is, is far from done. Um, but we're at a point where I think both, you know, the organizational side in terms of accepting input from the outside world around things that need to be fixed in order to keep users safe. And on the hacker side, in terms of actually understanding what the priorities of a business are and how best to interface with those things. Um, I think we're in a good spot and it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, one of the things I love is that the opportunity you give people that want to become pen testers, because, you know, a lot of these other companies, you're not going to go to a boutique pen test firm, giving your resume, likelihood of you getting interviews probably going to be pretty slim, but at least there they can get experience. And that's yep. what kind of drew me to Bug Bounty, because with my students, when I was teaching at the college and anyone I mentored, I said, if you want to get pen testing experience, do Bug Bounty. You're getting real world experience that's transferable over <clears throat> to a full time day job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ideally there's no, there's no kind of gate to that. Like you, you see kind of security roles being 
uh, you know, advertised on LinkedIn, different things like that. And it's, it's you've got to have 10 years of experience as CISSP, like all these different things from, from a historical kind of career track record standpoint. And security to me doesn't actually kind of work like that. Do you know what I mean? Like the bad guys aren't thinking in that way. They're just thinking about being successful. So like, how do you mimic that on, on the supply side, you know, in, in terms of folks that will work in good faith and actually help with defense? Like, how do you lower that barrier to entry for people that have the skills and, and you know, have the kind of commitment and the willingness and the moral compass and all those different things that come into it? People that want to build a career, how do you make that as easy for them to do that as you possibly can? Um, it's a, it's a, you know, <clears throat> Like work, I think traditionally doesn't operate like that. Um, and, and what we've been able to do in terms of democratizing and, and making it kind of meritocratic in, in some ways, like if you can like pocket GTFO, um, you're good to go. Um, and we're going to add skills to, to how you do that so that you can interface better with the business, write a better report, understand their priorities, all those different things. But if you've got a skill set, there shouldn't be anything stopping you from actually contributing to being a part of the solution. So like, how do we reduce the friction around that as much as we possibly can? Um, it's been really cool to see the impact of that. Cause I think the, um, you know, the hacker community at this point in time, like 10 years on, right. Started the company in 2012. Um, we're now in you know 2023 and like, there's a lot of water under the bridge. It's massively larger than it was when, when I first kicked this thing off. Um, so to see kind of that accessibility manifesting in people actually building a career out of this stuff and, and, you know, going through the same journey that I did, like realizing that, oh, these ways that I think about, <clears throat> you know, exploitation, like technology, all those different things, they're not bad necessarily. Like there's actually a, a useful and a good application for it that I can get paid for um, and, and build a career around. Like the more people that idea gets into the hands of, in my mind, the better. Yeah. One of the things I love too is from like a, humanitarian perspective helping others globally is just from being involved with bug crowd seeing some of these people that were in some countries that didn't have the opportunities and they're yep. buying brand new laptops cars yep. they're able to be able to afford homes for their families and a lot of people think that bug bounty is too difficult but i think from what i see and i know it's not something easy but when you try hard enough it seems like you can make a living off of it and there's people out there proving yeah. that they can make a living off of it yeah, definitely, definitely. And then, you know, I, I think in terms of, of what we've done to facilitate that from, from a technology standpoint, and this is, you know, I, I think one of the things that is is quite unique about how bug crowds approach this problem. I actually don't see this as a bug bounty market because, um, the, the you know, the, the internet doesn't have a bug bounty problem. It's got a problem with outsmarting the adversary. So how do you engineer the ability to deliver human creativity into places where you need to actually get that done? Um, so what we've what we've built out from from a platform standpoint is is pretty much the equivalent to a dating website for for people that break computers, right? Um, and you know, to me, that actually sums up the problem that we're solving quite well. Because you know, with a dating website, like you don't know for sure that romance is going to happen. It's not a certainty. Um, you, you like the goal is to maximize the probability of success, right? Um, it's the same with discovering vulnerabilities. So this idea of like, yeah, I know that there's going to be bugs in that company or in that code or whatever else. Like, how do we maximize the probability of the right match in terms of the person that's invited to actually do that work and the traits of the thing that's being targeted to, you know, find a thing, connect, 
you know, A to B and, and, you know, create information for the defender to be able to actually go off and fix those, those different things that might be discovered. Like that to me is the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and I think that extends across to a lot of different aspects of security, you know, like detection response. It's all ultimately the product of, of human creativity and human incentive. So like logically to me, there's a role of, of human creativity and human incentive in, in the defensive side as well. Yeah, it's very very interesting, you know, when you mentioned the creativity part, because definitely offensive security and bug bounty definitely requires a lot of creativity. But one of the things you just kind of mentioned earlier about the the limitations of pen testing, the number of hours and stuff, but one of the things that's really great that you've done with bug bounty is be able to scale because you know, only having one person on a pen test team, they can only do so much. They only there's only so many hours in the day that they can work and to expand that. And really, you know, bug bounty was the first continuous pen testing model because before that no one was really offering a continuous pen testing option yeah Yeah, i think i think that's right um my (laughs) it's an interesting one and and it's like very definitely like an easy conversation to start a whole bunch of fights around um in terms of like what is a pen test um you know i think at this point in time uh there's there's you know folks that view pen testing through a purely kind of compliance driven lens uh, in terms of like the business reason for actually doing that stuff in the first place. Um, and as a, as a security kind of purist and as someone who, who comes into this with, with a attacker mindset, um, to me, if you're not reducing risk, then what's the point, right? Like methodology, it's good to be able to go through a set of, uh, of steps and, and make sure that you've you know done a complete test, but at the same time, like absence of proof isn't proof of absence when it comes to, to vulnerabilities. And I think that's how the markets kind of interpreted a lot of what it currently does as, as, as pen testing. And then there's, then there's the whole kind of idea of it not being a continuous process um, that you just called out, you know, typically pen test gets done on a project basis, not on a continuous basis. At this point in time, like most organizations are releasing code on a daily basis. Um, that definitely wasn't true when we first started, but it is true now. And, you know, this idea of there being continuous assurance to identify risk and, and to have that kind of build a break of feedback loop um, into development to make sure that things are being fixed if there's an issue, but also that there's lessons from that that can be used to avoid those same mistakes in the future. I think that's a, a critically important thing that's, um, you know, as I said before, like th- there's a lot of progress in terms of the acceptance and the adoption of that idea, but there's still some way to go. I think another another good uh, point for the continuous method, the ongoing pen testing was back in my consulting days, I did a pen test for this company. And one of the things they included was a 90 day retest. Yep. So we got through the pen test. And one of the things they did is they did remediate all the highs, criticals and mediums. But there was a low risk vulnerability at the time that was not a vulnerability. Nine, between that 90 days, someone figured out how to exploit it. Now it was like a higher critical Yep. If they waited a year to perform that pen test, then that would have been vulnerable that year and someone could have taken advantage and, you know, breached their environment. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, honestly, we, you know, without um, sharing things that I shouldn't, like we see that all the time. You know, the, the idea of there being regressions, um, the idea of, of you know, a, a, a P4 being discovered and, and it's not fixed because it's a P4 and it's not prioritized in a way that, you know, creates urgency around remediation, um, but all of a sudden it gets escalated into a P1, uh, you know, with with new information. And again, with the right set of creativity to actually extend 
that attack chain and create greater impacts. Um, that's a really common thing. So, you know, this, this idea of that being like necessary as a feedback loop for defenders to have in, in how they think about security, how they think about engineering, how they think about deploying systems. Um, yeah, as I said, like it's, it's, it's getting there, which is good. I can't recall the exact stat, but I know CISA had a document recently. They were talking about some of these breaches are not always higher critical or zero days. People are chaining together known vulner exploitable <clears throat> vulnerabilities. May not be that critical, but they chain it together to to lead up to something more impactful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we saw a lot of that during COVID. I, I think um, like nation state adversaries like moving from like stealthy kind of unknown zero day type stuff um that was highly targeted to, to kind of move into a more wholesale exploitation model um you know collecting shells and saving them for later um that was a, a shift in in adversary behavior that we saw you know in 2020 2021 as well um and yeah it, it kind of goes to to what we're talking about here like some of those issues might not be the end of the world when you first presented with them but all of a sudden you see like a a, a known threat um, that has, you know, a strong incentive to create like a negative impact for your organization, all of a sudden, like it becomes a higher priority at that point in time. And yeah, like the extension of those things into, you know, chained impacts and, and, and so on, there's, there's a lot of that going on as well. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, the, the shows another good reason for the researcher community, because there's a lot of researchers sometimes yeah. they find these zero days, find these vulnerabilities, if it wasn't for that researcher community, and if they can't operate in a world where they can do this legally, then the stuff doesn't get disclosed and the protection uh, is just not out there for, for people to defend themselves. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Like, you know, going back to one of the kind of origin points of thesis that, that I had around bug crowd, it's, you know, and you've heard me say this a bunch of times before, like cybersecurity is a fundamentally human problem. Like the, the idea of like, forgetting to lock your front door and then someone else coming along and exploiting that, that predates the internet by thousands of years, right? Um, what we've done is sped it up. So like, how do you, you know, engineer the ability to identify like oversights like that um, and, and, and give that feedback, you know, into, into folks that need to defend themselves more effectively. Like there is a fundamentally creative process that defines what the adversary is able to achieve Therefore, you know, there's a fundamentally creative aspect of defense that we need to, you know, better facilitate. Um, and that's never not going to be true, like until until the robots take over. Um, you know, to me, like that's that's always going to be kind of the nature of what we're doing for a job. And, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that's exciting for the hacker community. It's exciting for Bugcrowd as a platform in terms of our ability to actually deliver that solution. Um, and yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I see it as a constantly evolving space. Um, you know, like we're talking about AI and machine learning in terms of like hacking that stuff now. Like we weren't talking about that 10 years ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. IoT was, was a thing that we started to focus on as an organization in 2016 or so. Um, prior to that, it wasn't a thing. And like that's to me always going to be true because technology evolves. That's its role. That's what it does. Um, so this idea of, of, of being able to, you know, apply creativity into how risk is going to manifest in those things, like that's always going to be a thing that we need to be aware of. Um, and the ability to scale that to your point and, and stay ahead of the adversary because they're very focused on scaling, um, you know, is, is a necessary thing. 
Yeah, from a from a practitioner perspective, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what kind of tools we have to come out to scale our efforts and make things easier. Because, you know, once upon a time, you didn't have vulnerability scanners is more manual. And now vulnerability scanners are part of the mix sometimes because it's able to scale what you're doing. So it'd be interesting to see what some of the vulnerability scanners evolve into. And then some like your your metasploits, your exploitation frameworks, be able to uh, create payloads to to evade antivirus and endpoint detection is going to be interesting to see how that yeah, evolves. No, definitely. Like I, I think what's interesting with you know the um, the kind of the way that LLM and and just you know generalized AI has been dropped on on everyone's thinking over the past six months. Um, you know the idea of being able to like use tools like that, but then access the entire corpus of knowledge historically on, on what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past to inform the next step when it comes to creating a kill train. Um, that to me is a really, I know there's a lot of people working on, on ways to do that. Um, you know, to me, what, what that's probably going to do is, is kind of kill off the, uh, the Nessus plus, you know, pen test space in, mm -hmm. in, in a very short period of time, because, you know, ultimately like you're kind of mimicking a, a low end, pen tester at that point in time. Um, so that market, which is quite a large one, um, all of a sudden becomes automated and becomes redundant in the process. Uh, you know, watching how that evolves over the next little while will be intriguing. Um, there's definitely, you know, Buckrat's been using like machine learning and AI in a lot of what we do. Like my view of, of that kind of technology is it's kind of like the Iron Man suit. Um, in a lot of ways, like you know, the suit without the human isn't as smart as it could be or it needs to be. Um, you know, the human without the suit isn't as powerful as they need to be to get the job done. So if you put those two things together, all of a sudden you've got something that is effective. Um, that's kind of how I've always thought about that. And it's it's this you know marriage of technology and, and human creativity to actually get the job done. Um, that's speeding up very quickly right now, which is fun. Uh, it, it's definitely a lot of kind of opportunity. There's a lot of like seeing around corners on this stuff has actually become a lot more difficult over, over the past period of time because there's just so much happening uh, at, at such a rapid rate that, you know, ingesting all of it is, is a lot. Um, but, you know, I think the tooling that we've got access to, like the main thing to keep in mind is that the bad guys have access to this, these sets of tooling as well. Um, so, so ultimately we're going to be in a position where we actually need to respond to that as defenders. And that's to me, the challenge. Yeah. Really, really from the bad guy perspective, threat actors, I think where it's really going to help them is the better writing, better phishing emails. Cause sometimes things are so yeah. obvious that it's not legit, but I think that's going to, seems like that's going to help them. Yeah. Like that's, that's a lot of what we've seen. I think, I think the, um, and that's kind of where I think a lot of the threat analysis around AI um, gravitated towards because it's intended to be human-like in its behavior. So like logically, phishing is a great you know application for that um, as a bad guy. And yeah, like, the, you know, the whole idea of like, you know, deep fakes, like all those different things, um, you know, the, the idea of customization of, of phishing emails to, to be more personalized and have a higher click-through rate on, on, on the you know, victim side. Um, those are all things that, you know, what's interesting about all of this is that we've seen the use of machine learning and the, the use of AI to do this stuff for years. Like this is not a new problem. Um, but what, you know, I think 
things like ChatGPT and and kind of this you know Bard, like all these different kind of tools that have been dumped on the internet over the past period of time and and kind of raised awareness and consciousness of of this as a set of things that we've got to play with um you know it's kind of elevated the fact that like that's possible so so you know here we are in in this oh crap moment of like what does that mean for the future um to me that's that's a really you know like information more like there's a whole bunch of different things that actually you know kind of fall out of that that i think are really important to think about like information warfare is is a huge one and i think that's kind of tangential but related to phishing um because ultimately you're trying to you know use technology to deceive people at scale um that's a that's a big thing as well it's part of what we got involved with with um election security back in you know 2018 um and that's continuing to progress as well. I think, you know, it's it's a really good time to skill up on that stuff. Like that that would be a takeaway for for listeners on 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 this um this podcast is that, you know, machine learning, adversarial AI, like thinking about the ways that these kinds of technology can be exploited um and how to defend against that. Um there's you know, more people thinking about that now than there was six months ago, but there's still not, not enough. Um, I, I think there's there's a really, you know, clear opportunity for that from a career standpoint. I think it's actually really important in terms of, you know, safety. Yeah, that makes me think one of the best quotes, I guess, I've heard since, you know, people really getting more aware of AI because the chat bots bringing availability to people, people worried about having their jobs. But one of the best quotes I heard was uh, someone said that, you will not be replaced by AI. You'll be replaced by someone that knows how to use AI. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, like the 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 analogy there from a, a future of work standpoint. Um, yeah, I think about like the time when you'd go to a, a, a you know supermarket in Australia or like a you know whatever drugstore um, type of thing here in in, in the US. And there was always like this was actually one of my first jobs was a checkout operator at a at a supermarket. Um, so it's it's kind of relevant to me personally, but you know, seeing that role get replaced by a machine um, that you can rock up to and scan your thing, and it takes your credit card and off you go, right? Like that took that thing took someone's job, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and the thing that's interesting about that to me is that like that's never not been true. Like steam engines took the job of people that could get horses to do the right thing. Um, like this is this is not a new concept for humanity, right? Um, but what it requires is, a, to your point, an elevation of skill. Like how how do we think about you know mastering like the tools that we've got? Um, how do we you know use AI for the right reasons, for the for the right things that create value? How do we actually kind of ascend you know our our kind of mastery of that domain um, in order to you know continue to deliver value in, in terms of what we're doing from a work standpoint. Like, I think that's right. I think the thing that frightens me is, is a little bit strong, but like the thing that I kind of lose sleep about a little bit on this one is it's all happening so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the ability for, for the population to actually keep up with that and figure out how to get in front of it. Um, I get concerned about that from time to time, but yeah, I think, you know, the problem that you're talking about is exactly the right one to solve. Like how do we actually step ahead of this stuff and and master it? And before we kind of close out this episode, we can't forget to discuss disclose IO since, you know, bug bounty is a related topic. And I know this is something you're passionate about. So 
you wouldn't mind sharing about Disclose.io? Yeah, for sure. So Disclose.io is, you know, like Bug Crowd, as, as you know, we, we kind of laid out at the front, um, we sit in between the hacker community and, and people that need that input and, and plug it in in ways that are useful, right? Like Disclose.io, the, the mission and the objective behind that is to create a favorable operating environment for hackers. Um, because, you know, coming into this, as, as I said before as well, um, the default view of, of us and what we do has been that we're probably criminal. Um, and that's not always true. So like a lot of the laws that have been written, you know, CFAA, um, the Computer Misuse Act in, in, in the UK, like the criminal code in Australia, like different things around the world, kind of presume that if you're breaking a computer, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, and the problem with that is it creates a chilling effect for, for folks that are doing security research in good faith. So like Disclose.io was, was designed to facilitate getting around those problems and ultimately like creating change in the laws themselves, which we've actually started to see over the past two years or so. Like the, um, the CFAA was updated by the Department of Justice um, to basically carve out the fact that like if people are doing security research in good faith, then they shouldn't be prosecuted. Um, that was an eight-year journey to, to, to get that release. Um, but, you know, we're starting to see some some meaningful progress around that. Very interesting. So thanks for sharing that. And we'll, we'll, in the show notes, we'll share links to that as well as your social media and bug crowd. Is there anything you'd like to share before we end this episode? No, I like I appreciate the chat. Um, you know, I, I think uh, for, for folks that are listening on, um, on the hacker side, like go sign up to Bug Crowd. Uh, you know, we, we, we've got Bug Crowd University from an education standpoint. Um, you know, you and I were talking about the fact that we're going to actually jump back into more of the educational side of things uh, as we go forward, because that's the thing that Bug Crowd has done a lot of in the past. We definitely, you know, took our foot off the gas a little bit during COVID, but it's back on the gas now. So, um, you know, if you're a hacker, if you're an aspiring hacker, you're wanting to learn, you're wanting to contribute to being a part of the solution to the problems that are out there, that's a way to do that. Um, and for customers and, and for folks that actually need, you know, creative input, pen testing, bug bounty, VDP, whatever it might be, um, just reach out and, and let us know and we'll try to help you out. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. One of the things too that I'm sure you still offer, you know, people think about bug bounty and they want to make sure they're meeting PCI requirements or all that. I know you had your uh, next generation pen test service is what you had called it when you started it. Are you still offering that? Yes. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, and a lot of what we've done, you know, this is where <clears throat> I think the whole, <clears throat> the interesting thing about bug bounty is that it's so um, noisy and topical uh, that, you know, folk can quite easily typecast what we do into that particular thing. And that's the tip of the iceberg. I think, um, you know, what, what, like 80% of what Buckrat does at this point in time is actually private work. That looks like source code review. It looks like pen testing. It looks like, you know, going through and doing a tax service enumeration on, on a private basis. Um, that could be to fulfill the needs of compliance. It can be to, you know, minimize risk and identify things that haven't been found before. Um, so yeah, like really what we've done, as I said before, is created this very flexible way of plugging you know all of the creativity that exists out there on the internet with all of the problems that need to be solved and it just really depends on what problem needs to be solved um compliance is definitely a huge driver for, for for this stuff so we've we've done a lot of work to actually feed into that very cool so thanks thanks for joining it was an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you 
Likewise. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Philip Wiley Show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, to learn more about Philip, go to thehackermaker.com and connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Philip Wiley. Until next time.